Hey everyone, this is Giuseppe Rossi here. I want to welcome you all to my first podcast. Uh, this is something new, something uh, I've been wanting to do post-career. A lot of things that I want to talk about, a lot of things I want to get off my chest. Uh, I've been in the game for 19 years and uh, a lot of things have happened. Um, I've always tried to be a model, professional, and I think taking the energy and taking my mind off the game was never what I wanted to do during my career. So I have this opportunity now. I have this, I have this platform. I have, uh, I have the time more than anything right now to, uh, uh, to be able uh, to share my ideas and to you know, express things that maybe back in the day I didn't. And uh, therefore, I hope you guys can stick around, um, enjoy these conversations about soccer, about uh, things that are happening today, uh, my experiences, uh, certain situations that happened to me that will go on and, you know, uh, talk about freely um, situations in youth soccer today. What, what is the state of youth soccer? What, what, what is the state of, of, um, of soccer in general? Um, so thank you for being here with me and let's go. Here I am, Giuseppe Rossi, post-career. It's, uh, it's a little bit weird saying that, right? I never thought I would, I never thought I was, um, I would say that I'm retired, right? That word kind of scares me still today, but reality is reality. And, um, I just got to get used to it. Um, I have more time now with, you know, with my little kid with my wife doing, you know, daddy duties, driving my little girl to school every day, um, being able to spend more time with family, being available for anything that anybody needs, right? So back in the day, it, it was never like that. I left, I, I left the country when I was 12 years old, right, to start my soccer career. And um, that's where it all started being a little bit different for me, right, from anybody else. Every time I got I, I came home um, during the summertime uh, because I had, you know, two months off from soccer and from school. I came back home here in America, and I always felt like the outsider, right, just because just because of uh, the experiences in life and what we had to, you know, me and my father when we left the country, what we had to go through um, in order to, you know, start this journey. So let's just take it back to when, to when I was four years old. I grew up in Clifton, New Jersey. At four years old, I started... I started playing soccer. Uh, the passion grew for me because of because of what my dad uh, transmitted. Uh, my passion for the game grew thanks to my father who loved this game. Uh, he's an immigrant from Italy. Um, he came in here when he was 16 years old. Uh, he met my mother who's also uh, from Italy, born and raised in Italy. And, um, and my grandparents, they came to Italy. So the love I have for this game is all thanks to my father. He was a big, big fan of uh, of soccer. And being born and raised in Italy, that's really all that there is, right? Uh, picking up a soccer ball, going on the streets, playing with your friends, that's basically how my father uh, really, really grew um, loving this game, which is literally playing on the streets in his home little town in Fraine. My father and my mother, both come from little towns in Italy, and at a very young age, uh, my grandparents, they decided to come to America uh, to live a better life, because back in Italy, obviously, um, life was a little bit different. So uh, they came, and they grew up, they met each other down at the high school because they were teachers, and uh, voila, me and my sister happened, right? So at two years old, 
my father was already putting out cones in the backyard. He used to come back from teaching for his lunch break. Didn't even go out to have his lunch or whatnot. He didn't even go inside. My mom prepared him food. No. First thing you do was put cones in the backyard at two years old, and I'm dribbling in between the cones. So my father loved the game, right? And he was able to pass it along. He was a big Milan fan, huge AC Milan fan. So guess what? I became a huge AC Milan fan. Um, every Sunday, uh, we used to come down with, with our AC Milan jerseys, and we used to watch the games um, at 9 o'clock in the morning. And that was something that I'll never forget, right? We have pictures of me and him uh, wearing our Milan jerseys and whatnot. And my first idol was Ruth Gullit, because my father loved Ruth Gullit, right? Um, then I started falling in love with Marco Van Basten. Um, then the great George Weah was my, uh, was my idol. After, um, after George Weah was Andriy Shevchenko. We're talking about amazing, amazing players who made history in Mina. So growing up, I was a huge, huge AC Milan fan, right? So watching the games, my father was a coach for Clifton High School, going to these uh, practices, going to his games. It was a part of me, right? Every single second of the day was about the ball, the ball. And uh, being able to play in the backyard, we used to, we, we used to also do a 2v2. So it was uh, me and my mother versus my father and my sister, right? So um, the ball was always part of my life, right, since I was a little boy. So this love and this passion for the game grew and grew and grew at 12 years old. My father was like, hey, let's go to Italy. Let's try it. Let's see how we handle playing with the big guys, playing with the people that, you know, live and breathe this game, right? So, listen, at 12 years old, um, we, made a, we made a decision to go to Parma. How did we get to Parma? Um, at nine years old, I was able to uh, attend a soccer school in the, in the vicinity of Parma. So I went there for three straight years, nine, 10, 11 years old. I'll never forget when I was nine years old, I never, we, we all flew to Italy. I never slept by myself in a hotel room, but for that camp, I had to sleep by myself with, with another guy. So I was sharing a room with, with this kid, and the first night I was scared. I was scared I wanted to be with my mom and my dad and my sister. I wanted to be with them, and they were with the hotel right next door. So I go down to the lobby. It was, it was, um, it was 10 o'clock uh, at night. I'm like, hey, coach, 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 I need to go see my parents. I need to go see my parents. So I run to the room. Um, I'm crying. I'm like, yo, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here, please. Like, can I stay here tonight? So they they talked to me. They were saying, listen, you got to do it. This is this is what is required. Had a little pep talk with my pops, and um, and that's it. And then the rest is history. So did that for three years, man. Did that for three years, and... Uh, the third year comes up, this guy from Parma, he's the youth director, he's a youth scout, whatever he was. He was like, hey, listen, you want to come and try out for Parma? My dad was ecstatic. It was great. I was happy as hell, too. Everybody was, right? So we're like, yeah, of course, of course, no problem. We go down to Parma. Um, we stayed there for two weeks in 99. Uh, stayed there for two weeks during uh, my Easter break. I killed it. Hey, we want your son to play for our youth system. And uh, and that was a decision that, you know, we all had to make. Uh, we weighed out the pros and cons. That process was rough, all right? I'll tell you about that process. At 12 years old, weighing out the pros and cons, right? The pros, everybody knows what the pros are in that, which is you're going to Italy and playing soccer 
in Italy. You're playing for Parma, which in that time was a Serie A team. You had Buffon, you had Turam, you had Cannavaro, Hernan Crespo. You had amazing players. I think they even came second right behind Juventus that year. So they were a big team, and, you know, it was it was something that every kid wished to do, right? Go play in Italy for, for, these, uh, for these type of teams. So those are the pros, right? Um, and then you start going with the cons, right? At 12 years old, you're like, I'm leaving home. I'm leaving my mother. All right, just think about 12 years old, leaving your mother. That's tough. That is tough. You have your sister. I'm very, very close to my sister. We used to fight every time, but it doesn't matter. We were very, very close. Um, your everyday life, right? You have your friends. You have your soccer team, right? Uh, things you love to do. That has to all be interrupted to go to Italy and play. So we made the decision to go. Obviously, it was my decision. My father was like, what do you want to do? I never wanted to let my father down. Right, I wanted to, I wanted him to always be proud of me. I wanted him to, um, I wanted to show him that I'm not scared of anything. Like, this is our dream, let's do it. But deep down, yeah, I was scared. I was scared. I didn't. It, it, it was kind of like you know, it was scary to leave something that you know and go into the unknown at 12 years old. Right? There's people that are. Older, 30, 40, 50, like they, they get scared doing that. Imagine a kid at 12 years old doing that, right? So, so yeah, so I was like, hey, Pops, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, we get there. My father confessed to me um, after all this. He confessed to me that he was ready to, to leave after a couple weeks or a month because he didn't think that I was able to withstand it because it would have been too much. Um, so he was, he didn't tell me, but he was already ready in his mind to be like, all right, we're going to come back. Um, but anyway, we get there, and uh, it was rough, man. I'm telling you. It was rough because the language barrier uh, was was kind of crazy. I, I didn't know the language. Italian was my first language, right? I went to school uh, here in America, and I didn't know a lick of English. Um, so for the first couple of months, I had no idea what the hell was going on in school because I, I only knew Italian. Um, but then in school, obviously you learn English, right? So, um, I knew the language. A lot of my family members speak dialect. So it kind of, you know, the words in Italian and dialect are a little bit different. So I had a little bit of trouble with that. Um, but I was able to pick it up pretty quick. Problem is that you're kind of looked upon, uh, you know, as like a different person once you hit, when, when, once you get to Italy and uh, you're dealing with, you know, kids that age. So, you know, they kind of put you to the side in school. You know I mean? You're not talking to people. You know, you're like the, you're like the weird one. So that was kind of new to me. It was kind of like, all right, like, how do I navigate towards this? What helped me the most was soccer, right? Because if you're good at soccer in Italy, you're like, you're like, God. So um, everybody knew that I was playing for Parma. So f in that area of playing for Parma, it was like, you know, it was like as if uh, you're a superstar. Um, so I was able to uh, use my soccer story 
to gain a little bit of traction, a little bit more of, you know, curiosity from these kids to be like, hey, come and talk to me. You know, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just like you guys or whatnot. And we are very similar, right? So soccer helped me a lot in those, in that time where I was finding a lot of difficulty making friends outside of soccer. Because when it came to soccer, it was, it was freedom. It was something that I knew, uh, something that I was better at than everybody. So therefore, I felt comfortable. People were gravitating to me more on my soccer team than the kids from school because uh, everybody wanted, you know, to to play with me, to um, to be part of my team or whatnot, right? So, so that was the easier part, the soccer part. Soccer is an international language, right? You don't need to talk. You don't need to gesture. You just play. You just play, and therefore that's what that's what helped me a lot. Feel like feel at ease in my first couple months, uh, getting you know used to this new type of uh, lifestyle. What I'll never forget in that first two months, my mother came to visit me. Um, I think it was a month and a half right after I left. My mom came to visit me, and I'm not kidding you, bro. I'm not kidding you. I feel like it was two years that I didn't see my mother. So I get out of school, and my father never carries my backpack. Never. He was like, give me your backpack today. I'm like, what? He's like, give me your backpack. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. My mom's hiding behind a tree. She comes out, and I'm running to her like as if like I'm Forrest Gump, man, running so hard. Blah, blah. And uh, I'll never forget that feeling because I was never away from my mom for that long. And um, and still to this day, she remembers like that hug, like that was like that's our hug, right? Um, so yeah, great memories, great great memories um, during that period. Um, playing for Padma for all those for all those years during the youth system was awesome. I was able to I was able to progress year in and year out, scoring goals, uh, being a very important player for the youth system. There was just this one year, this half a year. I'm going to say half a year. This half a year that things got a little iffy, and I'll tell you why. So my parents, they're teachers, right? Uh, they have a job. They can't be leaving their job this whole time to be with me, right? So they got to they gotta figure out a way to make ends meet, right? So what happened was the first year my father came with me. And um, and uh, and he and he took six months off of work. He had to go back. So guess what? The second year, my mother and my sister came. Uh, they stayed for a whole year. My pops came to visit me very often. Why not? He came to visit us often. Third year comes, mom and dad can't take time off, right? So I had to be put into um, into a school where you know you sleep there and you go to school, and all other soccer players were there. From, from the part of my youth system. That was my first, uh, you know, touch of freedom. My first, my first uh, time being by myself. And I was like 14 years old. So out of seven classes, I was feeling six. The only one that I was doing well with was in English. Go figure, right? Um, usually during my soccer career, in 20 games, I would be scoring 30 goals. I only scored eight in this half season. So word got to my father from people from the school, people from uh, 
the soccer uh, team, they're like the parents, they will call him up being like, yo, this, listen, there's something up with Giuseppe. Um, you know, he's a little bit different. Well, now the thing, th th things are not going the way they should. So my pop comes in, in January. So the season starts in August, January. We have the, at 14 years old, we have the most serious conversation that a parent could have to a 14 year old. Giuseppe, what's wrong with you? Are you doing drugs? Are you going out? Are you, uh, all the crazy things that you have a conversation with an 18-year-old, he's having me with as a 14-year-old, right? And I'm like, listen, nothing's going on. It's just that this is new. Like, everything is just new to me, right? My father decided after that conversation to retire. No more teaching. No more coaching. Full time with me. And that was the best decision that anybody has made for me in my career. Because if that didn't happen, I would probably be not to where I would have liked to be in this, uh, in this sport. So my pops comes in January. Season ends in June. From failing seven classes out of eight, I failed only one out of eight, which was Italian. And Italian is, is, was too hard. So uh, it's okay. My father was like, listen, don't worry about it. I had so many problems with my teachers too, man. They didn't even, they hated that dad had played soccer. But that's another story. And then the goals, from eight goals, I went to 16. So I literally doubled my, my goal tally. So let's just say that that was a very important pivot. At 14 years old, a very important pivot in my life to where I would be heading to in my soccer career. Uh, my, my dad, he saw, he saw, he, 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 he understood, my father, he understood the moment that I was in. He understood how important it was to have that guidance, to have that support at 14 years old to help me and guide me, you know, through, through life. You know, I, I, at that age and being put in a situation where you have to grow up very fast um, and learn new things about you at such a young age, you know, it, it could get scary. It could get um, hard. It could get confusing. Um, a lot of chaos in your head because, you know, you're, there's so much information that you're taking in about yourself, learning so much about yourself where, you know, you don't understand what's happening to you, right? You don't understand the, the direction that you're going to. So my pops understood it. He's like, He's like, I will be full-time dad mode on you right now in Italy. That's the most pivotal part of, I think, my youth career uh, was that decision that my father took. And after that, after that third year, man, everything started, started clicking. Um, I was playing each year. I was playing up. I was scoring many, many goals. I was able to, um, at 15, you know, play for the second team of Fatima get a couple of games in. At 16, I was already starting on the second team of Fatima. And that's, that's when the interaction with Manchester United came about. It's a, it's a great story. It's a great story because I still remember that feeling of when I met this guy. So I was training. It was a random 
training session during the week. And at the end of it, this old guy by the name of David Williams, he comes to me and he approaches me. He's like, are you Giuseppe Rossi? I'm like, yes, yeah, me. Stick out your hand. So I stick out my hand. He's like, I'm going to drop a pin in your hand. And that's the team that I work for. I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. I look at it. It's Manchester United. And I'm like, whoa. I used, I used to be a big fan of Andy Cole and Dwight York back in the day, right? The two strikers that played for Manchester United in 99, winning uh, the treble, winning the Champions League and everything. So when, when I did see that pin, you know, I kind of got, I was like, I was happy. I was excited. I'm like, all right, that's cool. When he said that we are interested in having you, bro, my insides were like exploding. I was so happy. I couldn't wait to get to the parking lot to my father and be like, hey, dad, I want you to meet David Williams. And, you know, that's for this conversation. Um, so many conversations back and forth. This was in this was in May. We had a month long of conversations back and forth. I didn't have any contracts with Barma. I was 16 years old. I didn't have any contract with Barma. They were offering me a four-year contract. And it was literally a no-brainer. Because you're talking about Manchester United, man. Manchester United, man. Side note. I'll give you the side note. Listen to this. This is crazy. When I was 12 years old, I, have, um, I was writing letters to my friend. His name is Ralphie. I'm like, hey, Ralph, what's up, man? I'm here. Padma's doing uh, Padma's great. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Um, I can't wait to grow up and play alongside you uh, for Manchester United um, and scoring goals. It went something like that. And I drew a picture of, of him crossing the ball to me, me scoring. Whatever, you know, things that, like, you know, 12-year-olds do. So we used to write back and forth. So... When I signed for Manchester United, he showed me that letter, and I'm like, yo, are you crazy? Like, like destiny, man, like energy. I don't know what it is, but it's just crazy how we actually brought that letter to life. He didn't play with me on Manchester United. That would have been amazing, but, you know, I was able to, I was able to make it. I was able to, you know, live that dream out, which was, which was amazing. But anyway, going back to our story about the contracts where I didn't have a contract with Padma. They were offering me a four-year contract, Manchester United. And that's where a little bit of uh, craziness happened with Padma. They didn't want to let me go because I was one of their best players in the youth system. So Arrigo Sacchi. Arrigo Sacchi is known as the person who revolutionized uh, soccer in Italy worldwide. Uh, he won Champions League with, um, with, with Milan. He won many, many titles with Milan. Actually, I don't know if he won the Champions League with Milan. We have, we have to check that. But uh, great coach. 94 World Cup coach. We lost uh, in, the, in the penalties. Um, amazing, amazing coach. He was the sporting director of Parma at that time. So he takes me in at 16 years old. And he's, uh, he's trying to convince me. Convince me to stay. Convince me with a new contract, um, saying how my decision of leaving would be very bad. Uh, it would be frowned upon in Italian soccer. Um, mind you, I'm a 16-year-old kid. 
I had two training sessions. I remember two training sessions with the first team. So I was getting, I was slowly putting my foot into the first team at 16 years old. Um, but having a figure like Saki, right? Uh, that aura that goes around them, right? For a 16-year-old, it's it could be a little bit intimidating. So when my father saw me go in, he starts chasing us and saying, listen, listen, I'm coming in with you guys. I don't want you to go in by myself, by yourself with my 16-year-old kid. So obviously, that's what happened. My father was able to come in. You know, as a father, you have to protect your kid and you want to make sure that things aren't, um, aren't, being, uh, aren't being done properly. After many attempts of them trying to keep me, and after that conversation where it was kind of, it was kind of uh, them making us feel bad, making a decision of that nature, we kind of understood was, we, we kind of looked at each other, me and my pops, and we were like, this is a no-brainer. This is literally a no-brainer to where this opportunity comes once in a lifetime. We're talking about Manchester United. So as much as Parma now wanted me to sign a contract, not before, not when I was doing well, but now, because now we have, we have a team that wants me. They want me to sign a contract. We didn't, we didn't feel like it was, it was something genuine. It was something that they believed in, right? So the decision to leave for Manchester happened that year in 2004. And I finally signed my first professional contract. Talking about Manchester United, what the hell is happening? This is, uh, this is interesting, man. I, uh, Manchester United, when I, was, when I went to Manchester United, I feel like it was a totally different world than what it is today. I had the, I had the fortune to go train with Manchester United four years ago when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was, um, was the coach. And this was a time where I wasn't playing, so um, I was able to call Sir Alex Ferguson and be like, hey, boss, how are you? Um, is there a possibility to come and train for United? And he was kind enough to, uh, to, talk to, to talk to Ali and uh, give me the opportunity to go and train with them for two months. It was great. It was awesome. When I got there, it was a different feeling. Then when I got there, when I, when I signed my first professional contract, when I was playing for them in 2004 to 2007, we had the man, the myth, the legend, Sir Alex Ferguson as our manager. Sir Alex was the one who built that culture, who built something that, that is hard to explain, but it's something that you could feel. When you enter those doors, you feel his aura. Um... His, his way of doing things was transmitted to every single person, not only players and coaching staff, but to, to the cleaning ladies, to the receptionist, to the video and audio guy, to the people cleaning uh, um, uh, the fields, the landscapers, everybody. Everybody um, lived and breathed this culture that was built thanks to what Sir Alex Ferguson did when he first got there. He started off by believing in the youth. You have the class of 92, right? The famous class of 92. Uh, Neville's, Scolzies, Beckham, uh, Giggsy, Nicky Butt. You know, these players are the ones who laid down the foundation of what Manchester United is today. Fast forward to now and to when I went there four years ago. And now... 
can you guys name a player that came from the youth system that is established in the team as a leader? Off the top of my head, no. Off the top of my head, no. And I feel like when Sir Alex Ferguson left, that culture left. What happened is that the focus was more on winning right away. And therefore, when the patience of waiting for the development of a player is gone, then you have to find a quick solution to winning. And what happens is that um, bad decisions are made. The focus is in the wrong area to grow as a club. And therefore, you start straining away from that culture. You start straining away from, the, from what worked throughout all these years. Because every coach has an ego. And every coach wants to put a stamp on such a big team like Manchester United. But newsflash, there's only one Sir Alex Ferguson. So you had many coaches that came down and tried to bring forth their ideas and start their own ways of doing things, right? From the Mourinho's, from the Moyes, from the Bangals. These are coaches that have very strong personalities that are very successful. But it's hard to change a culture of a team like Manchester United. The ones... In, in, my, in my opinion, the coach who is able to have success are the ones who is able to put their ego to the side and believe in the culture that was established that made Manchester United who Manchester United is. And listen, at times, yes, I get it. It's hard. It's hard to put your ego to the side because you're a man. You want to, you want to make your own path. And I respect that 100%. But there's certain establishments... There's certain clubs that live and breathe their culture. And therefore, once things start going a little bit astray from what they're used to, then that's when, you know, you start hearing those boos. You start uh, feeling a little bit of, you know, murmurs among, among uh, the fans. And therefore, their patience starts running out quick. You're seeing it today where, yeah, Manchester United are not in the are not getting the results that they want. But let's not forget that last year, they had a very good season, right? According to the previous seasons that they had, uh, they got fourth place, playing in Champions League, so that's great. They lost in the finals of the FA Cup versus Man City, but they won the Carabao Cup, right? So in recent history, in recent history, that's a good season for Manchester United. But how did those results from last year become okay? For a team like Manchester United. When I, when I got there, when there was Sir Alex Ferguson throughout his whole entire um, career, that season of last year was, was considered almost a failure. So now today, we, we're going to talk about the, we're going to talk about the Glazers. Because when they took over, when I was there in 2004, right, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of resistance by the, by the fans. And rightfully so, because a new group, English group, excuse me, English, an American group that take over an English team, you know, was something almost new. The fans had problems with them because they were never present because of certain financial decisions that they, that they decided uh, to make. And therefore, uh, since day one, there was always this friction between fans and the owners. The problem that I have still to this day, is that this is an ownership group that doesn't really care too much about the product. 
doesn't care too much about what's happening on the field. They don't care about the soccer part. What they care about is the pockets, right? They care about what's the right investment, who's the player who could bring in the marketing dollars. And yeah, it's good that you have the money to spend. Well done. I'm happy to see that. But what are what's the main reason why we're getting this player? Is it because to benefit the product on the field, to better the product on the field and the results on the field? Or is it for the marketing purposes, the resale value, whatever it could be, right? In this moment, and it started, yes, during the period of when the Glazers took over, that the shift from building a culture kind of went away. And it was more about building the business part. When that started, that's when things started going south for Man United, right? A season like last year is a, was a mediocre season, almost a failure during the years of Ferguson, right? I feel like today the acceptance of of being okay in that club right now is is welcomed among players is welcomed among you know what is happening around the name of Manchester United. And listen, it's hard to get back to the days of Sir Alex Ferguson, right? It's it's hard to get back to those glory days of always winning the you know the Premier League uh, winning Champions League because there's teams now in the Premier League that are well equipped, teams that have spent properly. Now, not spend top dollar it doesn't mean just because you spend a lot of money that it's going to lead to success. No, there has to be strategic and smart ways of going about investing to create a team that is going to win. To make these certain decisions, I'm always in the belief that there have to be people that understand the game itself, that understand the X's and O's, people who who live and breathe this game, and that their first thought is literally the product on the field, and not only the dollar signs. This is the problem that I see with Manchester United, that it's going away from its core values, what has been built in the past, to a huge business oriented club to where results and product on the field and fans are put second to the financial parts of this game. And I don't give all the blame on the players. I don't give all the blame on coaches because everything starts from the top down. And the top, we all know, are the owners. They're the ones who establish what is happening underneath them. And if you allow certain things, if you act a certain way, then it's just a trickle-down effect. Listen, when I, I'm still today a Manchester United fan, um, I want them to see do good. I want them to do better. And last year was a great step forward to getting back to those days. I just hope that it's not going to be a one-off and that this year we're back to square one. So I'm rooting hard. I'm hoping that things will turn positive. But guys, if there's anything else that you want me to talk about, you want to you wanna have a conversation, just leave a comment below. I'll answer every question that you guys have regarding this topic or any other topic. And now, my favorite part of the show, Pepito's hot take. My hot take for this week is that I'm not buying all that bullshit on Marcus Rashford. For me, Marcus Rashford is a world-class player. I don't care if he doesn't 
score for two, three, four games in a row. You could see that he lives and breathes that shirt. That's something that I care for. That's something that's important to me. I've had the privilege to train with him um, for those two months, and I've seen his qualities. But truthfully, you don't even have to train with him to understand what he's capable of doing on the field because you guys see it every Sunday. He's a vital, vital part um, to the Manchester United team for what he brings, for what he, for what he does on the field. And for me, he is probably one of the most important figures on that team. Not only what he does on the field, but what he brings with him. He's not only the most important player for me on the Manchester United team, but what I look at is also the quality of the human being because the qualities of the human being are then expressed on the field. He's somebody who is unselfish, somebody who puts other people, other people's needs before him, right? And you see that with the great things that he's done off the field. And therefore, just because he's not there scoring goals every single Sunday or he's not the player who's going to take on the whole team and try and being, you know, being the hero all by himself. Just because he doesn't do that doesn't mean that he's not consistent. Doesn't mean that he's not a world-class player. Sometimes the the definition of world-class for people is just what you're able to see in that moment, right? The big boom moment, which is the goal, which is a great save, which is a slide tackle, but the game is so much more than that. And therefore, in my, in my opinion, Marcus Rashford is a world-class player. That's my hot take for today. I'll see you guys next week. Hey, everybody. This is Giuseppe Rossi, and welcome to my podcast. This is something new for me, but one thing I do know is that you could click the subscribe button below.